This is a recording of Maori Latter-day Saint Faith, Some Preliminary Remarks, by Lewis Midgley, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 8, 2014, pages 45 through 64, read by Ellen Fair. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Mari Latter-day Saint Faith, Some Preliminary Remarks, Lewis Midgley, Review of Marjorie Newton, Tiki and Temple, The Mormon Mission in New Zealand, 1854-1958, Salt Lake City, Greg Cofford Books, 2012, XV plus 328 pages, including a glossary of Maori words, three appendices, bibliography, two maps, 29 illustrations, and a photography register and index, 29.95 paperback. Abstract. Marjorie Newton's widely acclaimed Tiki and Temple is a history of the first century of Latter-day Saint missionary endeavors in Aotearoa, New Zealand. She tells the remarkable story of what, beginning in 1881, rapidly became essentially a Maori version of the faith of Latter-day Saints. Her fine work sets the stage for a much closer look at the deeper reasons some Maori became faithful Latter-day Saints. It turns out that Maori seers, and hence their own prophetic tradition, was for them commensurate with the divine special revelations brought to them by LDS missionaries. Among other things, the arcane lore taught in special schools to an elite group among the Maori is now receiving close attention by Latter-day Saint scholars. I have argued elsewhere that Marjorie Newton's history of the first century of Latter-day Saint missionary endeavors in New Zealand is exemplary. Tiki and Temple is a fine book, one that I highly recommend. I also agree with Elder Glenn L. Rudd, who knows the Church of Jesus Christ in New Zealand very well, that Tiki and Temple is genuinely faith-affirming. One reason is that its author gives the reader a picture of the Lord's purposes in sending the gospel to New Zealand, a country of great natural beauty and a country blessed with spiritual giants, Maori prophets, priesthood leaders, and dedicated missionaries who diligently and constantly battled against the many problems they encountered as they fulfilled the missions assigned to them by the Lord. Forward, page XI. 
The story of Mar rejoining the church in large numbers has, of course, been told and retold and sometimes embellished, but it has also been discounted or explained away. Some of what has been written about these events has been excellent. For this and other reasons, Newton graciously acknowledges what she describes as the, quote, fine work, end quote, of others on the history of the Church of Jesus Christ in New Zealand, page XII. She also modestly grants that, quote, as an Australian, end quote, she might be deficient in her grasp of, among other things, quote, Maori culture, end quote, page XIV. She hopes, quote, that one day a Maori historian will produce a scholarly history of Mormonism in New Zealand that will remedy any omissions and defects, end quote, that her accounts may have, page XIV. I fully agree that Maori scholars are best situated to provide an explanation of the faith of Maori saints. And there is, fortunately, increased interest in recovering and preserving the crucial memory of what made the Church of Jesus Christ essentially Maori during much of its first century in New Zealand. Those who know me well will testify that I am fond of the peoples of the South Pacific and obsessed with the Maori and New Zealand. But in important ways, I remain an interested outsider. I will, however, set out some of what seem to me to be the grounds, dynamics, and deeper dimensions of the faith of Maori saints. I will sketch some of what I believe are the reasons for the truly remarkable faith and faithfulness of Maori saints that supplement or go beyond what one can find in tiki and temple. First, there are good reasons to see the old Maori prophetic tradition mentioned by Elder Rudd in the passage I quoted at the beginning of this essay as both roughly commensurate with what they embraced when they became Latter-day Saints, and also as part what led them to become Latter-day Saints. Put another way, those first Maori to become Latter-day Saints were engaged in what I consider a providential joining of two prophetic traditions. Something long anticipated. Although focused primarily on the events beginning in December 1882 that led to an essentially Maori version of LDS faith, Newton's account begins in 1854, when the initial missionary efforts were somewhat ephemeral and focused only on the Pakeha, a person of European descent. Those first LDS missionary endeavors in New Zealand followed the method used successfully in England of renting halls and holding public meetings. In New Zealand, doing this was mostly ineffective in converting the independent, mostly indifferent, and sometimes hostile Pakeha. These intermittent endeavors also included gathering a few saints who had been converted elsewhere baptizing a few among their families or friends, 
and then occasionally sending them to Zion in Utah. Newton sets the stage for the story she tells by skillfully identifying an interest in the Maori among some of the saints long before efforts were made to convert them. See pages 1 through 6. For example, in 1832, long before 6 February 1840, when the the famous or infamous Treaty of Waitangi brought New Zealand under the crown, W. W. Phelps, impressed by a description of the Maori he happened to notice, proclaimed that, quote, the Lord will not forget them, end quote, page 1. In 1858, a few LDS missionaries began to labor in New Zealand, but a genuine effort to take the gospel to the Maori began only in 1881. This fact has annoyed me. Why did those first LDS missionaries not go immediately to the Maori? Had not Joseph Smith sent Addison Pratt and his three associates, one of whom passed away on the long voyage, in 1843 to preach the gospel to the indigenous peoples of the South Pacific? Did they not have immediate and lasting success? This was the first real non-English-speaking LBS missionary endeavor. Newton mentions that when passing between Australia and New Zealand, for a brief moment Addison Prant had a hankering to stop in New Zealand and later wrote to Joseph Smith recommending that missionaries be sent there. See pages 2 through 3 for details. Newton deftly explains the difficulties those first LDS missionaries faced in New Zealand, as well as some of the circumstances among the Maori that seemed to have impeded, and even prevented, the long-hoped-for effort to bring the restored gospel to them. See pages 22 through 24. In addition, I believe that LDS missionary endeavors with the Maori benefited from the remarkable growth in literacy among a people who, prior to the arrival of the Pakeha, had no written language. Hence, their subsequent familiarity with and love of biblical narratives made available in their own language. LDS efforts to proselytize among the Maori especially given the few LDS missionaries called to New Zealand for short assignments, depended upon earlier efforts by Methodist, Roman Catholic, and Anglican missionaries to establish their versions of Christianity among the Maori. These Christian missionaries were among the first British to settle in areas in which the Maori were concentrated. They had to learn Maori, Words had to be found or fashioned in Maori to convey their message and to make available portions of the Bible. The impressive immediate result of those early sectarian missionary endeavors was that for a while, and until the surge of Pakeha settlers swamped the Maori, most Christians in New Zealand were Maori. In addition, with the arrival of the Pakeha, For reasons that I will not go into, the Maori population began to decline. 
the faith of Maori Christians was not focused on dogmatic theology, but on biblical stories which seemed to them to describe their own situation and to convey hope in the face of the enormous changes and challenges resulting from both the arrival of the Pakeha and the dynamic of tribal hostilities. After the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840, the Pakeha began to gobble up Maori land, that is, often stealing it. The result was a series of wars between some Maori and the Crown over what were considered insults and the theft of their lands. The Maori witnessed those who had brought them the biblical message became apologists for Pakeha greed. Only when these wars eventually subsided was the door opened for LDS missionaries. Where previous LDS missionaries, including mission presidents, had depended almost entirely upon the largesse of the few generous Pakeha saints, beginning in 1882, most LDS missionaries in New Zealand lived among Maori and depended primarily upon them for their sustenance. This took place only when armed hostilities had ceased. The Maori had lost confidence in the Pakeha preachers and after they had become somewhat familiar with the Bible. The Beginnings when LDS missionaries eventually adopted a mode of teaching that entailed major cultural accommodations to Maori ways, they had remarkable success. The result has been described as an intercultural exchange, which I believe involved, among other things, the subtle melding of two commensurate prophetic traditions. The initial breakthrough began on 5 April 1881, when William J. MacDonald was called by William M. Bromley, the New Zealand mission president, to serve as a missionary to the Maori. MacDonald had joined the church in New Zealand and served as branch president in Auckland, where he operated the dry dock at the bottom of Hobson Street. When called as a missionary, he went to work learning the Maori language. On 18 October 1881, MacDonald baptized Ngataki, a Maori he had met while working at the Graver Dock in Auckland. Ngataki was the first Maori baptized in New Zealand. Other than this one baptism, all efforts to proselytize the Maori proved fruitless until 24 December 1882, when MacDonald and two companions met one prepared by an encounter with the Apostle Peter to hear his message. MacDonald had journeyed to Cambridge, a provincial town southeast of Hamilton, to visit Thomas Cox, who had recently moved there from Auckland. Cox had previously despised MacDonald even mounting a petition to have him removed as branch president. Despite this, MacDonald and President Bromley decided to spend Christmas with Cox. Bromley's fine diary provides a nicely written contemporary account of a remark 
remarkable encounter that he, Cox, and MacDonald had on 24 December 1882 with Hari Tiamana, who indicated that he recognized Bromley and his associates. Tiamana told MacDonald in Maori that the Apostle Peter had recently visited him. Dressed in distinctive white clothing, Peter had shown him the three Latter-day Saints. Upon recognizing them, Tiamana accepted their authority and then their message. On Christmas Day, the first of a series of baptisms took place, as well as the healing of the relationship between MacDonald and Cox. As this account illustrates, it was often not an agonizing, difficult decision for Maori to accept Joseph Smith as a seal and to recognize both the message and authority of LDS missionaries. Unlike the Christian world generally, for some Maori, the heavens were not closed by either dogma or habit. In addition, some Māori were prepared by special divine revelations for the arrival and message of LDS missionaries. Even in 1950, the Māori, I soon discovered, were not influenced, as I had been, by powerful elements of Enlightenment skepticism about divine things. They lived in a world where wonders are possible. Hence, Newton correctly reports that, quote, many Mormon families have told of visions received by their ancestors, guiding them to accept Mormonism, end quote, page 43. I first heard accounts of these visions in 1950 in the area around the Bay of Islands north of Auckland. I assumed that they had all been recorded by earlier LDS missionaries if not by the Maori saints themselves. I was wrong on both counts. The Maori saints were still accustomed to the habits of the older oral culture and usually did not record events. I am not aware of a collection of these stories. I now regret that I did not make it my business to record the stories I heard. My attention was primarily focused on what now seems to be rather trivial but pressing mundane things, the weather, food, transportation, and other similar matters. Even though I loved the stories I heard, unfortunately I followed in the footsteps of previous LDS missionaries and did not record them. At that initial encounter of MacDonald, Bromley, and Cox with Harry Tiamana illustrates, the Maori who became Latter-day Saints often lived in an enchanted and, for me and some other LDS missionaries, an enchanting world. From the moment I knew that there was such a thing as an LDS mission, I expected to serve in New Zealand, and I did so in 1950 through 52. This was almost seven decades after the Māori began to join the church. Over six decades later, I am still taken with those people and that place. Much like others who have served missions in New Zealand, my faith is anchored in part in the work of the Holy Spirit I have witnessed among the peoples in that land. I found in 1950 that the Māori were often strikingly open to the divine. 
Their test, they would point out to me, was moral or practical. It was not whether the restored gospel was true, which even non-LDS Mari would tell me was for them obvious, but whether they were really determined to remain genuinely faithful to the covenants with God required by the message LDS missionaries brought to them. When I first arrived in New Zealand in 1950, I lived in the area in and around the wonderful Bay of Islands, where at Waitangi, what the Maori tend to see as a compact between two peoples had been set in place. The Maori enjoyed pointing out that the Christian missionaries, whom at first they had trusted, had taught them to close their eyes and pray. But when they opened their eyes, the land was gone. Beginning in 1882, when such grievances were fresh in the minds of the Maori, LDS missionaries seemed to have sided with them over the deeds flowing from Pakeha greed. Unlike the Pakeha, they saw the missionaries as equals who lived with them, loved them, and made no claims on their lands. In addition, much like the Maori, the missionaries were the object of oppression legal restrictions, and sectarian derision. The Maori saints I met at that time were in their own way at least as, quote, Mormon, end quote, as I was, and their conversion stories were often far more dramatic than those of my English ancestors. For these and other reasons, if there was cultural imperialism, it was not due to missionaries from the Wasatch Front imposing something foreign on the Maori. They clearly owned their faith. LDS missionaries, including mission presidents, have often been enthralled by the best in the Maori world. In addition, my experience has been that Maori saints often feel that their faith enhances and deepens their Māori identity, which otherwise is transformed, eroded, and degraded under the sometimes demonic influences of the now-dominant sensual and increasingly highly secularized host culture. Despite efforts to proselytize Pakeha and increasingly rapid changes in the situation of the Māori, some of which have clearly not been good, the Church of Jesus Christ in New Zealand in 1950 consisted primarily of Maori saints who most often worshipped in tiny rural branches. Maori were just beginning to surge into Auckland and Wellington, soon followed by Tongans and Samoans. In 1950, there was one LDS branch in Auckland. There are now ten stakes. In 1950, there were two Māori saints who had university training. Now university training is common. The changes clearly have been enormous. When my wife and I began to return to New Zealand in 1985, I was at first a bit disappointed at some of the changes that had taken place in the church. My attachment to the saints in New Zealand was partly frozen in memories of what amounted to a community of mostly Maori saints. Much but not all of that, of course, has now changed, as my Maori friends explained, quote, for the better, 
end quote. One of the changes has been in the variety within LDS congregations. Virtually every Sunday in 1999 and 2000, my wife and I, while directing the Lorne Street Institute in Auckland for the church educational system, heard favorable comments about the diverse ethnic makeup of LDS congregations. My first mission president had sought to overcome the stereotype that the Church of Jesus Christ in New Zealand was Maori. This soon happened, but not by its becoming Pakeha. LDS congregations in New Zealand are now packed with Pacific Islanders and other nationalities and ethnic groups in addition to Maori. But this is not the story Newton tells, as her account covers the first century, when the church in New Zealand was essentially Maori, not the story of the subsequent six decades. Maori Seers Perhaps the incidents best known about the history of the Church of Jesus Christ in New Zealand are the accounts of LDS missionaries finding Maori who had been readied by their own prophets to accept them and their message. When we refer to Maori prophets, which Elder Rudd did in the passage I quoted at the beginning of this essay, we tend to reduce the strangeness of a people originally with no written language who, with the arrival of the Pakeha, still depended upon subtle memnonic devices and a cast of experts to keep the memory of both human and divine things alive, and who believed that knowledge of the divine things could be revealed directly to human beings. Drawing upon the work of Lanier, Bridge, and Brian Hunt, see page 42, note 5, Newton briefly mentions several Maori prophets, Paora Potangaroa, Tauiao, Toaropakahia, Apiata Kuikanga, and Arama Tuiroa, page 42, who, Maori saints both then and now believe, prepared them for LDS missionaries and their message. The Maori themselves presented these stories to me as brute fact, and I have known them for over six decades. I am now more astonished and puzzled by what I began to learn in 1950 than when I first encountered it. Though these stories have been told and retold, there is more to be learned about Maori prophets. For several reasons, Latter-day Saint Maori scholars are in the best position to recover valuable information and set out new insights on this and other closely related topics. As passionate as I am about the world of Maori saints, I operate only on its surface, like an interested tourist struggling to take it all in. There are, I believe, important bits of information that help open for us the world of Maori prophets. For instance, the Maori word poropiti, prophet, is actually a loan word, the English word prophet spelled in the Maori alphabet. The genuine Maori word is matakite, that is, seer. Kite means to see and perceive, to find or discover, and to recognize. 
It also means a prophetic utterance or prophecy. And Mata is a medium of communication with a spirit, also a spell or charm. Hence, a Matakite is a seer, one who foresees an event, but also the vision itself. In addition, the word Matatuhi also means seer or augur. The word tuhi has come to mean both the action of writing and something that is written. But its primitive meaning is to delineate or draw, to point at, and to glow or shine. Latter-day Saints should keep in mind that Joseph Smith was a seer before and then in addition to becoming a prophet authorized to speak for God. He also used the two stones known in the Book of Mormon as interpreters, see Mosiah 8, verse 13, 28, verses 13 through 16 and 20, as well as his own seer stone to see the text of the Book of Mormon which he dictated to scribes. He also used his seer stone to receive further instruction from God including many early sections of the Book of Covenants and Commandments, which we know as the Doctrine and Covenants. There is also a place in Maori lore for Watukura, seer stones, two of which have names. Seer stones had an important place in the initiation into the arcane Maori mysteries. This is not, however, the place to go into detail other than to assert that from within the horizon of Maori tradition, both seers and seer stones are not problematic. An arcane Maori cult. What I learned in 1950 from some older Maori saints was that when LDS missionaries arrived with their message, the Maori were already aware of a premortal life and a council in heaven where the sons of Iote Matua, the Maori name for their high god, considered the peopling of the earth, at which time a war broke out that goes on even now here below, also a way back to the glory of Io's heaven, and so forth. They attributed this knowledge to their own seers, whose teachings fit securely within the worldview of specially trained Tohunga experts, whose task it was to keep alive the memory of an esoteric cult, fully known only to an elite group of initiates. When the Pakeha arrived in New Zealand, the Maori relied upon, among other things, rigorous memorization of vast amounts of genealogy and other closely related lore to keep alive their knowledge of divine things as well as a host of more mundane information and skills. Even though they rapidly became illiterate, the oral transmission of information was still very much in place in 1950. Even though they rapidly became literate, the oral transmission of information was still very much in place in 1950. Of course, attention had to be given, even or especially within the community of saints, to mastering English and the ways of the Pakeha. 
Inevitably, this has tended to supplant, if not erode, the authority and the knowledge of the old oral traditions. Some of the old lore was recorded. Neither the old lore nor its impact on the faith of Maori saints has disappeared. And, as I will demonstrate, serious efforts are being made to recover and teach it. For me, the very best portion of Newton's fine book is the new and important information she provides, see pages 171 through 73, on Hoani Te Watahora Jury, 1841-1921. He assisted in the translation of the Book of Mormon into Maori and then joined the church, pages 52-53. Church leaders in Salt Lake City were aware of Te Watahora and even commissioned his portrait, which was first hung in the Salt Lake Temple, then in the Manti Temple, and eventually in the library at BYU Hawaii, page 171, including note 62. There is, however, more to Te Watahora's story. Beginning at age 22, between 1863 and 1865, long before any Latter-day Saint had influenced any Maori, he was the scribe for Moihi Te Motor Ohunga, circa 1800 through 1884, and Nepia Pohuhu, died 1882, who dictated to him the mysterious teachings of Ngati Kahunga Na Anu, page 171. Newton sees the Te Watahora manuscripts as, quote, sacred genealogy, end quote, which in part they are, but they also contain the understanding of divine and human things, what might be called the esoteric religion, taught in a Huar Wana Anga house of learning or college, also known as Huarekura, to an elite group of Maori. Te Watahoro enhanced these manuscripts and eventually donated them to the church. Clearly recognizing their importance, church leaders made an effort to send them to the church archive in Salt Lake City, pages 171 through 72. The New Zealand government blocked this effort, and they were instead preserved in a fireproof vault in the little LDS meeting house at Scotia Place on Queen Street in Auckland. These manuscripts were loaned to Maui Pomari, a famous Maori scholar, and were never returned. Presumably, they were lost or deliberately destroyed. However, a copy was retained by Te Watahora, and they were published in both Maori and English under the title The Lore of the Huari Wananga by S. Piercy Smith, an important early amateur ethnologist. The story Newton tells of the Te Watahora manuscripts includes much new and valuable information but she does not give attention to the actual contents of those manuscripts, nor does she sense why the church's general leaders wished to honor Te Watahoro and even pay his way to Salt Lake City 
so that he could receive his LDS temple endowment. Unfortunately, he was too frail to make the trip. I believe that Te Watahora's manuscripts, along with similar and related materials, are part of the larger matrix of elements that may help to explain why those early LDS missionaries saw whole Maori villages join the church. To sort out this matter, however, must be the work of Maori scholars. It seems that the higher celestial elements of what was taught in various Wananga were known to the to an initiated elite group, but not in detail by most Maori. Maori saints are often aware of the Maori high god known as Eel, and of related accounts of the creation of the world, a premortal existence, a great council in the highest heaven, a war that began there in the deep past and continues on earth to this day, an ascent back to the glory of the tenth or twelfth heaven and to the presence of ill and so forth. These and similar and related teachings were once transmitted to some select Maori in Wananga. It was from within this world of obscure knowledge that Maori seers tended to operate. How much and in what way the Ayo cult influenced those first Maori to become Latter-day Saints is, however, still to be determined. What is clear is that when LDS missionaries encountered Maori, some of whom had been prepared by seers for the restored gospel, they had remarkable success. When those early missionaries were able to convert Maori who were aware of elements of the eel cult, many others soon became Latter-day Saints as well. The reason is that initiates in the eel cult had what the Maori called mana, understood as, quote, the enduring, indestructible power of the gods, end quote. What I learned in October 1950 in conversations with an old Maori at Waikari in the south end of the Bay of Islands was that even before LDS missionaries arrived, the Maori were aware of a premortal life and a grand council in heaven in which the sons of Iote Matua considered the peopling of the earth at which time a war broke out that goes on even now here below. These and other similar or related teachings were known to an elite group of specially trained Tohunga. In addition, since there were disagreements both between and within Iwi about the details of the Eo cult, I believe there was also a longing or perhaps even an expectation that messengers would turn up to help sort things out. It is in this larger context that the words of Aramato Iroa, whom I see as the leading figure, and other Maori seers were understood by the Maori who first encountered LDS missionaries. It is from a passion for recovery of the genuine ancient lore that a Maori version of their encounter with Mormon things is even now beginning to take shape. That there were Maori Matakite is not challenged, nor is it denied that there were Wananga in which arcane lore was transmitted to future generations. 
However, some have insisted that, despite the solid evidence that the eel cult was taught in various Wananga in at least three iwi, eel was unknown prior to the arrival of Christian missionaries. In addition, some Maori, especially those who have been recolonized by, by Pakeha ways of understanding the world, who are hostile to any version of Christian faith, and or who have come to see Maori things through an essentially secular lens, now insist that the Isle cult was a post-European invention by Maori seeking to fashion a past that would rival what was found in the Bible. What can be said with confidence is that the Maori did not borrow from sectarian Christian missionaries what was taught in Wananga. It is instead Latter-day Saints who see parallels and similarities between their old faith and hidden Maori lore. What I have yet to see is the argument that somehow in the 1860s, LDS missionaries had managed to introduce the substance of the eel cult to some Maori, who then cast those teachings in the Maori language and thereby made it their own. Some steps forward. There is an increasing interest in traditional Maori lore and learning among Latter-day Saints, which I see as salutary. This began late in the 1990s when Harawini Jones, a truly gifted teacher, began holding Wananga for Maori with an interest in understanding the original links between Maori Matakite and the restored gospel. This public instruction in the arcane lore and related wakapapa genealogy demonstrates its links to LDS teachings. By 1998, the Wananga held by Hera Jones became a primary vehicle in effecting new conversions and deepening the faith of the saints as well as drawing lapsed saints back into full fellowship. This endeavor made it possible for Maori to see that the very best in their esoteric, esoteric lore and tikanga, governing rule, habit, controlling authority, the straight and right way, as essentially commensurate with the narrative upon which a solid faith in God can be grounded. From my perspective, this kind of instruction edifies and deepens faith. It has also opened the door for other LDS Maori scholars to probe the role played by the arcane teachings traditionally given in Wananga in the growth of the Church of Jesus Christ among the Maori, as well as the place those teachings have for the faith of Maori saints. Some of what Newton hopes will happen is actually beginning to take place. In her bibliography, see page 279, Newton mentions the late Cleve Barlow's Kitanga Wakaaro. Dr. Barlow told me in 1999 that he was one of the last three Maori to actually receive instruction in a traditional Wari. Wananga, and that the instruction he received 
matched LDS teachings better than the one recorded by Te Watahora. Should he publish his version? If he did not, he realized, the last living link with the important instruction he had undergone, elements of which he saw as agreeable with his own LDS faith, would disappear. Philip Lambert, an LDS Maori scholar, has recently informed me that when Dr. Barlow eventually moved from Auckland to Hamilton, he began giving instruction in his own wananga, presumably in an effort to pass on his own knowledge of the ancient lore forming the core of the old Eo cult. Some concluding remarks. On two occasions in October of 1950, I spent several days in Waikari, a very obscure place at the south end of the wonderful Bay of Islands. I engaged mostly in conversations with an aged Tohunga with a remarkable command of the genealogy of the Ngati Hine Hapu subtribe of the Ngapuhi Iwi. He described some of the instructions he underwent in what I now believe was a Huar Wananga, and he even wrote down some things for me. These conversations were the first time I had encountered someone with such a remarkable command of genealogy. He also introduced me to the related cosmogony and cosmology that included, among other things, a belief in a war in heaven which has spilled over into this world, a stairway back to the highest heaven, and so forth. I believe he indicated that his instruction had taken place at Waiomio, a little-known place just south of Kawakawa at the approach to the Bay of Islands. Recently I have learned from Jason Hartley that there was a Wanango at Waiomio which ceased to function in the 1930s. It had been shifted from further north to that place to avoid detection by the government, which was then striving to stamp out such institutions. I now regret that I did not record the contents of those conversations that took place in Waikari in October 1950, as well as other conversations I had with other Maori saints. I wrongly assumed that several generations of missionaries had heard and recorded these things, I was busy urging the saints to pay close attention to the Book of Mormon, not to gamble or drink beer, and that sort of thing. Looking back, I can now see that Maury I was teaching were also instructing me on how they read the Book of Mormon, and how their own prophetic tradition grounded and buttressed their understanding and affection for both the message it contained and the community of saints it engendered. Those who have ministered among the Maori are often captivated by them and their ways. Matters of the heart have had a truly lasting impact on LDS missionaries as they made portions of the Maori world their own. Such has been my own experience. This has been a recording of Maori Latter-day Saint Faith, Some Preliminary Remarks by Louis Midgley, originally published in Interpreter, 
A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 8, 2014, pages 45 through 64, read by Ellen Fair. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.